the C in CEO stands for culture. And, you know, I think fundamentally a leader has to be the culture carrier. You know, you have to hire great people, not just people who are good at the things you're not good at, but frankly, you've got to have hire great people who are good at the things you are good at and give them room, not just to thrive, but to drive. People want to drive. And I think in doing so, you also have to embrace a growth mindset in yourself and encourage the people in your organization to keep learning. Welcome to Straight Talk a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Penny Pritzker. Penny is an entrepreneur, civic leader, and philanthropist with more than 30 years of experience in numerous industries. She is the founder and chairman of PSP Partners and its affiliates, Pritzker Realty Group, PSP Capital, and PSP Growth. She launched the Skills for America's Future initiative of the Aspen Institute, which expanded community college employer partnerships. From June 2013 through January 2017, she served as the United States Secretary of Commerce in the Obama administration. She was a core member of President Barack Obama's economic team and served as the country's chief commercial advocate, leading the administration's trade and investment promotion efforts in creating the first ever skilled workforce initiative at the department. Penny, welcome to the podcast. I'm an unabashed admirer, so I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. Now you wear a lot of different hats. You're a former commerce secretary, a business leader, and a philanthropist. But in my mind, you're first and foremost a Chicagoan. Your family has deep roots here and came to Chicago from humble beginnings. Talk a bit about your family history and what you learned from your upbringing in Chicago. Well, first of all, Hank, thank you for inviting me to join you. I am an unabashed admirer of yours. Thanks for inviting me to join you today. You know, Chicago's my home. It's our home. You know, I've been thinking first about, you know, the roots of my family and the roots of my family are very much tied up in this war in Ukraine. My family came to the United States about 135 years ago. My great grandparents, Nicholas and Sophia, left Ukraine for the United States with their families with nothing but the clothes on their back. Uh, they escaped political oppression and immigrated here. You know, my great-grandfather, Nicholas, at age 10, taught himself English by reading the Chicago Tribune. And he was a pharmacist first and then became a lawyer and founded a law firm in 1902 called Pritzker and Pritzker. So my family has a long history here in this city, but our commitment to the city also was very much grounded in that history. My great-grandmother, Sophia, uh, you know, who barely had two, you know, shekels to rub together, created something called the Nickel Club. And she really set the tone, I think, for the family's commitment to the city. And the Nickel Club was um, to help newly arrived immigrants and immigrant families like hers who were trying to make it here in America. And Sophia would organize other women to pool together an extra penny or an extra nickel to buy food or clothes or whatever was needed by new immigrants. 
And that effort ultimately lent, ended up creating the Orthodox Jewish sheltering home. And every generation of my family since then has made a, a priority to give back to our city, to a city we really love. And the whole ethos of to whom much is given and much is expected, giving back, embracing others, is an ethos of a family that I grew up in. And it's a central part of our Chicago story. You know, that's really inspirational. Today, when there's so much angst about immigrants, we some some people in America tend to forget that this country has been built by immigrants. We're, we're a country of immigrants, and it's quite a story. And of course, I grew up in Chicago, and I began my business career in Chicago. And as I began my business career, the Pritzkers then were legendary. It's really an inspiring story. Now, you spent part of your early career working in the family business. What did you learn about business and entrepreneurship from those early days? Well, I was brought up in a family, uh, you know, my immediate family and my larger family that revered building businesses and thought about building businesses as a noble undertaking. By virtue of building a business, you create jobs, you create economic prosperity, you create upward mobility, not just for yourself, but for all the families that are you know, affiliated with the organizations that you're building. And I grew up where that was you know, considered really fundamental to community building and um, to what strengthened our country. And so I really, at a very young age, Hank, wanted to be in business. I felt that building a durable business and, and providing jobs was, you know, more than just a bottom line and a paycheck. And I watched my parents. My dad started Hyatt. He was part of that story. He was uh, the leader of the company. He was the first CEO. My mother was very involved in every and vital to so much of Hyatt's panache, Hyatt's early aesthetic, if you will. Uh, she in fact, developed, you know, recognized that early in the 50s and 60s that hotel reservations and motel reservations were made by secretaries. And so she developed a program to support the secretaries of major executives and things like that. But I mean, my exposure to business started really young. It, you know, first at the dinner table and then, you know, Hyatt originally were motels on the West Coast. So we lived in California and, you know, we had a few motels, not a lot. And we'd go to them and my dad would say, you go into the women's room and make sure it's clean. I'm going to go into the men's room and make sure it's clean. It was truly like an old fashioned family experience, if you will. And my dad would go to the office on Saturday and I'd go with him and I'd play. And now I'm really going to date myself. I play on the adding machine. <laughs> While he used, you know, talked on the telephone, if you will. But, you know, those were early days of Hyatt where there was so much opportunity for everyone. And literally, if you started as a bellman, you could, with enough talent, you be, could become a general manager. And, you know, that's really, I think, where my entrepreneurial spirit came from. I'm fundamentally an entrepreneur and a builder at heart. You know, I really enjoy working with a great team on the journey of building a durable business. And, you know, and I was thinking about this as I was contemplating our conversation. I was thinking about Goldman Sachs. You led Goldman Sachs. You know, what a durable business. And for me, a durable business is one that 
you know, has structural stability, but it's built to change. It's built to be flexible. It's built to adapt. It's sustainable through, you know, decades, if not centuries. And, you know, you've led businesses like that. And so to me, I watched my dad build, you know, the foundations of Hyatt. And after business school and law school, I really wanted to do that. And so I went to work, you know, with my family. And the first company I started was a senior living company called V Senior Living. And, you know, it's it's thriving today. And I not only created a company, but created a sector. I mean, it was senior living didn't exist. It's hard to imagine 35 years ago, but I had this idea that was really personal to me because I was taking care of my grandmother. My parents had passed away at young. My mother was an only child and my mother's mother was sort of left for me to take care of. And I needed a place or help it was really hard to organize care for her. And so that was the beginning of my first startup. And then I went on to start a number of other businesses like the Parking Spot and Artemis Real Estate Partners, Inspired Capital, uh, which is a really terrific new venture capital firm. I started with a partner a couple of years ago. And, you know, so my my history was not just starting businesses, but then taking companies like TransUnion, really building that. And that's been my, my story is I really am a business builder and entrepreneur at heart. And today I run our investment firm, PSP Partners, and we invest and build private companies and now some public companies uh, in technology services and in advanced industrials and real estate. So, you know, I believe that building businesses are noble. I believe in having returns for a reason. And we'll talk about philanthropy or performance with purpose. And that's a really fast run through my career of the last 35 years. And this country, you know, has allows people to, you know, have ideas and create new companies and new businesses and jobs and prosperity for so many. It's really, it's, it's great. Penny, just add to that, but you've said it very, very well, that business is a noble profession because governments don't create jobs, right? Governments don't create jobs and jobs and prosperity are created by business and by entrepreneurs. And that's what's distinguished our country. And really for a number of years now, business has performed better than government in our country. And uh, I think as I see it, CEOs, are becoming more and more capable, and it's making a big difference. But I want to talk about something else now that is pretty special about our country, which is the ability to go from business to government, right, and back again. You can't do that in many places. And your career in, in government is more recent. You served as President Obama's Commerce Secretary from 2013 to 2017. What drove your decision to go into government? I would say, first of all, the inspiration about serving in government came from my parents, you know, who taught us as kids that public service was a noble thing to do and an important undertaking. And, you know, I was inspired by someone like you, Hank, you know, who did exactly that. You you served our country at a really critical and perilous time. And you see what can be done. You know, my parents were very active in California politics. And I think my dad, if he had lived, you know, he died at 39. He had built a business. He'd taken it public by it. And he was probably going to go into politics. Um, but why did, how did I end up 
uh, becoming Commerce Secretary. And let me tell you a couple of stories. The first story is my opportunity really began when my good friend Barack Obama asked me to be his national finance chair. He told me he's going to run for president and he wanted me to be his national finance chair. And I really almost said no. But my husband, who was wise, made this really dramatic gesture. And I love him for his both humor and his dramatic gestures among so many things. But I was telling him about this crazy ask and there was just no way I was running a several businesses. I couldn't back away from our two teenage children. I had all these civic obligations. And he started knocking on the kitchen door. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, this is destiny knocking on the door of our country and you need to find a way to help. And it was really that gesture that made me and the permission from my children who were teenagers and I think were perfectly happy to see me more out of the house than in the house that, you know, led me to take on What frankly was, you know, I joined the campaign, there were 11 people, it was a startup. And, you know, I did what I always have done, you know, I went in and did my homework and research and then helped build an organization and hire people that I liked, trusted and respected, who knew more about fundraising than I did. And so it was great. And we built an organization that at its you know, was a billion dollar company, if you will, or enterprise or campaign with over 3,008 employees at the end, and then thousands and thousands of volunteers. And, you know, I had a really one of the, uh, beside raising money, I had the lead role in, in leading our engagement with business leaders for the campaign. And that was really important. And I know you remember those times, Hank, Uh, you were treasury secretary. You know, it was the great financial crisis and things were imploding. I mean, each hour by hour, day by day, things were falling apart in our financial system. And it was a scary time. And that experience as being part of the campaign and and, uh, economic advisor led me to, Obama asked me to serve on two presidential commissions, one led by Paul Volcker. And I know you dealt with Paul at that time to advise on the economic recovery. And the other was the Jobs Council. And all of that led then ultimately in the second term to my nomination and service as Commerce Secretary, which, you know, was an honor of a lifetime. So let's talk about that because The Commerce Department plays a vitally important role, not just for America's economy, but increasingly for our national security. So tell our listeners about the Commerce Department. What is its role in our government and how has that role changed in recent years? You helped drive some of that change, but but talk about the Commerce Department. I did. You know, the Commerce Department sits at the intersection, as you said, of all business economic issues, domestic and abroad, and increasingly a national security role. And, you know, what does it do? You said it, you know, jobs are created by businesses, but what government can do is create the conditions for economic growth and job creation and opportunity creation. And so what the department does is help U.S. companies prosper in the global economy. We help introduce companies all over the world to new markets. It issues patents and trademarks. It collects and provides data on demographics, the economy, weather. It sets standards. So whether it's a common language for cybersecurity or it's standards for nanotechnology or it's um, standards for fire hydrants, which is how 
uh, the standards department started. It invests in advanced manufacturing clusters, and it also facilitates foreign direct investment in the country, which creates jobs. It links minority-owned businesses with capital and contracts and markets, and it connects communities to broadband. You know, the National Telecommunications Information Agency is responsible for broadband. But your point is the role of the agency has changed. And this was something that we really instigated during our time, which is to really view the agency as the lead innovation agency for the federal government. And as tech and innovation have become such a central part of our economy and our national security, the role of commerce has become more important than ever. You know, and as you pointed out, you know, when it comes to national security law enforcement entities that regulate, for example, dual use. So if you have a product or a SaaS product or a mechanical product that it can be used both for military and for civilian purposes, you know, this Commerce Department controls whether you can export that. It also works with law enforcement on, you know, standards for encryption, things like that, cybersecurity standards. And it's going to be the Commerce Department is at the center of what's called the Innovation Act that will has passed the House and Senate and is in reconciliation now. And for example, $50 billion will be spent on R&D, particularly focused on semiconductor manufacturing and so much more. The Department of Commerce is right at the center of that. And we really laid down the foundation during our term for this uh, essential role. Yeah, I tell you, it is important that our institutions in government evolve to deal with today's world. And the Commerce Department, I, I just remember you taking a fresh look at the Commerce Department when you came in and, and a whole lot of things, including the role you played with China. It was, I, I think, uh, very important. Now, Business leaders, Penny, respect you, and you worked collaboratively with them when you were Commerce Secretary. One of the great attributes of our country, as I mentioned earlier, is being able to, to go from business to serving in government. So how did the skills you acquired in business help you in government? Well, you, you know this, Hank, better than anyone. I could ask you the same question, and you've been both a friend and mentor to me. And I watched you lead as Treasury Secretary and took a lot of notes from that. You know, what I learned from you and others is you need every skill you've ever learned in your life to be in government. It is very complicated because democracies require consensus. You've got to come bring people together. And and uh, my business experience was vital to the, my service in government. I had no prior experience in government. And frankly, the agency that I inherited was a mess because my predecessor, unfortunately, had a very serious health issue and really wasn't able to be present. And so the Commerce Department didn't really have leadership for probably over a year. And as President Obama told me, the bar was low. But what do you, what do, you do? You go in and you, you do what you've done in every other place you've been, Hank. You refocus the mission. And so the role of the department was to create conditions for economic growth and job creation and during the, you know, following the Great Recession. And so, you know, what I did, I hired great people. I spent a lot of time with the team and the leadership focusing on developing a strategic plan up front. Uh, and I spent a ton of time listening. We divided the country in eight sections and we went to each section of the country and listened to business leaders and try to understand what were their problems? What did they need? 
and I tried to position the department as a consumer service organization to try and help them. And we created a strategic plan called our Open for Business Agenda. And we used that during you know that term. It was our North Star. Every employee at the Commerce Department, there are 46,000 of them, they could see themselves in our plan. And, you know, frankly, it helped us hold ourselves accountable to the goals, not only of the White House, but that we had set. And it was our dashboard as well. I really was pleased. Um, The current White House asked me during transition to come and brief the new cabinet secretaries on how to create and use a strategic plan as a central management tool in government. And I, I was really pleased to be able to do that and help them. Penny, you said it very well, but, uh, you know, I looked at government as being much more difficult than business, right? There, there's no low hanging fruit in government, right? Everything, Absolutely. Some things are you know, analytically simple, but they're politically complex. And some are analytically complex and politically complex. Everything comes down. Every issue is a people issue. And yes, and what I learned was interesting. If you had people that run big hierarchical companies, which are command and control, they didn't do really well in government. But if you had people like you, the entrepreneurs, business builders, working with people, that's what it took to be successful. And uh, and clearly, you need a plan and you need to work very, very hard because there's not much that's easy. Now, let's talk about a bit about what you accomplished. You know, in your final days as Commerce Secretary, you drafted a memo. And let me just say, you, you draft a lot of memos, so strategic memos and so on. You're a good thinker and you're a good writer. And you dra- drafted a memo where you provided a record of progress of the Department of Commerce during the Obama administration. In it, you document your main focus areas as strengthening investment and in innovation, data environment, and operational excellence. Fast forward to today, how would you describe our progress in this front and what's most needed from partners in the private and public sector to move forward. And I want to just add one other thing to that. The reason it's important to do what you did, right, is not to take a victory lap and say, look what I accomplished. The reason it's important is to put it down on paper so there's institutional memory and so that the next team that comes in will have that. It's just so very, very important. So talk a bit about that. Well, first of all, I totally agree with you. I felt it was my national duty to record what I thought we had done well, what I thought we had not done well, where I thought there was a ton of opportunity, where I thought there needed to be more attention so that the next team had that. I didn't get that. My team spent the last three months doing that so that I could hand to the next secretary and his or her team that kind of opportunity set and playbook, not because they would do what we said, but because so that they knew where to start and where to look, if you will. You know, the department, I think that the most critical thing right now for the department is around innovation and competitiveness. And the current secretary gets that. It's incredibly important to our future. The United States is a global leader in innovation, but that status is not guaranteed. And one piece of our work that we did is we did a plan around competitiveness that, frankly, the Chinese have copied. But the good news is China has motivated Congress 
to make critical investments in national competitiveness and our innovation strengths. And that's why this Bipartisan Innovation Act I I mentioned before is so important. And I was talking both to um, the current Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, and the current Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo, and that both feel that the bill will pass. It's a $250 billion plus investment over the next 10 years in U.S. innovation, R&D, semiconductors, and regional economic development. And we need this bill. And I'll, I'll just give you one example why. Think about the semiconductor shortage, which we all hear about. That means that shortage has led to, you know, shutting down of auto manufacturers because we don't have enough semiconductors. You know, semiconductors in everything. You can now buy a coffee mug or water bottle with a semiconductor in it. It's in everything, but it's in our cars and it's definitely essential for our national security. And we do not have the manufacturing of semiconductors of the most sensitive and most advanced semiconductors here in the United States anymore. We used to lead the world. By you know, 1990, we were 40% of semiconductor manufacturing, and today we're 12%. And I can also say, why should the average American care about this? It's irrelevant to inflation, too. So think about buying a car today, which I recently received my car that I ordered a year ago, which is insane, but they did, they ran out of chips. So they couldn't finish the car till the chips arrived. The chips arrive, I could get my car. They're not even taking new orders for these electric vehicles because they can't get the parts right now and they can't get the semiconductors. What does that mean? The price of those cars goes up. It contributes to inflation. That is going on as well. So this innovation bill is essential for our competitiveness. It's also important for our innovation, if you will. The other thing I would say, you know, something that that has become really obvious to me that the department has a role in highlighting issues. And one issue that I'm worried about here, Hank, is immigration. You know, we started the conversation there. And the reality is that our working age population in the United States is not growing enough. You know, recently, I tell anybody who will listen, because I think this is an important set of statistics. Over the past 50 years, every five years, the United States creates five to eight million new working age people who come into the workforce. Over the past five years, we've created one million people. So we are short people. And that is a huge problem for our country and our ability to actually address some of our biggest challenges. And we need to turn that around. We have 11 million open jobs and post COVID, we're just not producing enough workers. We're down 1.8 million people, immigrants from our normal pace, 1.8 million. It's insane. So we need immigration reform. Businesses desperately need it. Our national security, it's imperative for our national security as well to ensure that we can actually make all the things that we're we're creating and innovating. Yep, and we're turning away so many outstanding foreign nationals who are educated in our top universities and have got the skills and talent to be the innovators that we need, and we're turning them away. So this is a huge problem. Imagine, Hank, if in Chicago, Toronto, which is the same weather that we have, it's a similar city. Toronto's growing at 1% population a year, a year. Imagine if we were growing in Chicago like that, what the economic prosperity would look like. It's because of their progressive immigration laws. 
they're bringing in extraordinary talent. I see it as a from my perches on the Microsoft board. Yeah, it's really pretty extraordinary what we're doing to hurt ourselves here. So let's talk about another area where where, where we have been lagging. What can the U.S. do to reassert its leadership in global trade and manufacturing? Well, I hate to say it. I think it's unrealistic at this point to see new trade agreements. I mean, we missed a massive opportunity, frankly, with TPP and not pursuing TPP. It was our chance to really be a leader in the Asia Pacific region, and we blew it. But, you know, on manufacturing, I think that the infrastructure bill is a great start to show that we can invest in our country again. And, you know, that will help us with manufacturing. If we can have the infrastructure bill and the innovation bill done, I think it will help us with our manufacturing, our ability to sell. And also, frankly, it'll do more to help us train our workforce. We need to give our workforce more tools to be able to deal with all the innovation that's occurring. Uh, And frankly, I think if we do that, I mean, these issues are interrelated, Hank. If you look at the Germans, average German citizen, they support free trade to a much greater extent than Americans do. And I believe it's because Germany really invests in its workers and their workers understand the importance of exporting their goods around the world and how important that is to German prosperity. And we need to do the same, invest in our workforce such that our workforce understands that not just making goods for ourselves, but selling them goods and services around the world is part of our own prosperity. Amen. So let's now talk about some of these issues in more detail. A few years ago, you co-chaired a Council on Foreign Relations Task Force that looked at our workforce and the impact of technology and U.S. leadership in the 21st century. Your report noted that a new age of AI, smart machines, and global competition are remaking how people do their jobs and pursue their careers. Now, this seems to this trend seems to have accelerated in the post-COVID economy. Talk about how you see technological change and its impact on U.S. workers and firms playing out. Well, look, Hank, if you think about this as one of the central economic challenges of our time, if you think, look back in history 100 years ago, we moved from an agrarian society to an industrial society, and that led to creating our public education system. I believe we're in the midst of the same kind of tectonic transition today. And as you said it, the pandemic accelerated this situation. So, you know, the pressure is even more to make sure that our American workforce can thrive in this existential challenge as we embrace technology and innovation, which is absolutely essential to drive our economy. If you think about the average salary for tech jobs in the United States is about $104,000. You know, so these are incredible opportunities. But in order to take advantage of those opportunities, you need to be a lifelong learner. You need to, you know, our friend, our mutual friend, Richard Haas would say, you know, we can't anymore do what I think, you know, so many of us did go to college, you know, learn a bunch of stuff and then spend our life kind of using that one tank of gas to 
build a career. Today, you have to keep refilling your gas tank. You have to keep learning new things. And I'm really proud of the work we did at the Council on Foreign Relations because that uh, task force became a playbook for a lot of what the Biden administration has done and is trying to do. You know, infusion of investment in early stage R&D and regional economic development, support for community colleges. Unfortunately, we're, we that part has not gotten done. You know, recommending that mayors and governors hire workforce quarterbacks to help them, you know, enhance training in their cities and states. This is a both a short-term and a long-term challenge, uh, as you said. You know, we've got 11 million open jobs, and we have 50 million Americans that are stuck in low-wage jobs. And we've got to help people get the skills they need to get hired and thrive over the long term in these really significant uh, job opportunities. There's one percent unemployment in technology today. Amazing! It's a huge problem, and I think as you said earlier, I just want to emphasize it again. Immigration is an important part of this and allowing more immigrants in is going to create more opportunity rather than take away opportunity. But we've got to train our workforce to also take advantage of this opportunity. Now, in the tech workforce, isn't just an issue that you're studying. So you're really putting ideas into action. You've founded and co-chair P33 which is working to make Chicago a global tech leader. And you started Skills for Chicagoland's Future, and you helped start the Pritzker Tech Talent Labs at the University of Illinois in Chicago. So two questions here. First, what have you learned from your work here in Chicago? Okay, what have you learned here? Well, you know, first, I, I've been so blessed with support and opportunity, and I'm committed to doing my part to give more people the access to opportunity. So number one, I think we have to be proactive. You can't just sit back and expect that Chicago is going to be a global leader in innovation or that our workers can do this on their own. Uh, even though we have phenomenal public and private universities, we have two Department of Energy national labs, and we train a huge percentage of the country's computer science workforce, but we're punching below our weight. So you've got to be intentional. Uh, and number two, we have to create systems and partnerships that improve our standing and help our workers get access to these opportunities. And we need to help our founders as well. So that's why we create, and we need to do all that at scale. And that's why we created and the city leaders came together to create P33, which is to improve our, as you said, to improve our standing as a top tier tech city and to bring more diverse um, workforce into tech. So, you know, among the things we do there, we target top tech talent across the country with, you know, uh, our innovative tech Chicago brand. You know, we help underfunded Latin, Latinx tech founders get access to capital and resources. And that's been massively successful. You know, uh, that program called TechRise. Um, we create pathways for all our residents to enter high potential tech careers through a program called Strong Start, which combines uh, computer science students in Chicago with local companies so that they can develop, the students can develop their portfolios so that they're hireable. Uh, we work with local leaders to advance our leadership position in innovation areas like quantum science, electric vehicle, life sciences. So it's, it, you know, P33 is one effort. As you said, 
you know, we created the Pritzker Tech Talent Lab with the University of Illinois, and their goal is by 2029 to educate and train 7,000 learners per year for tech jobs here in Chicago. And then Skills for Chicagoland's Future, which we created in 2012, is an organization that creates demand-driven solutions for employers. In other words, they take long-time unemployed and they give them training and they work with 120 employer partners and they've placed, I don't know, something like 9,500 people in jobs. Um, the bottom line, there's a lot that we've done here in Chicago, but we also have great partners. You know, Accenture and Aon have developed a phenomenal apprenticeship program with the community colleges. And, you know, I just think we have this very vibrant civic ethos here in Chicago that's important, but we cannot rest on our laurels. We've got to keep striving or, you know, the world will pass us by. You know, Penny, I want to emphasize a point you've made because you have some really innovative programs. And as I look at uh, philanthropy in various areas around, you know, our, our the world and around our country. There's great ideas and there's great success in a number of these, but the key is how do you make them really relevant by scaling them, right? And so it's not just coming up with a good program, but then how do you scale it? And that's something I think you're doing really well. And it's it's really, really important now. So Penny, I'm going to switch gears now. Everywhere you've gone, you've driven change. You've accomplished a number of key things in government and business and philanthropy. What are you most proud of in each of these areas? Well, in government, I was really proud of the fact that I think we tried very hard to deliver real results for the American people. You know, first, as I said, we tried to make the agency that we ran the Department of Commerce work better for the American people and for American business. You know, we delivered broadband to millions of Americans. Uh, We've reformed the patent system. We created a program called Select USA that brought in a record amounts of foreign direct investment. And you might say, why do you want foreign companies here in the United States? Well, it turns out they actually provide phenomenally good jobs with great benefits. And so that was a big motivator. We strengthened U.S., Mexico, and U.S., Canada, and Mexico trade. I'm really a big believer in the North American platform as being a competitive manufacturing platform with Asia. We made our economic data more accurate. I was um, displeased with the amount of revisions and data that we would put out, and I kept saying we've got to be more accurate originally. We also tried to make our weather reporting more accurate. We improved tornado warnings. Uh, by several minutes, which may not sound like a lot, but it saves countless lives every day. Uh, We created a cybersecurity framework that is de facto used by virtually every business in America. We created the first ever skilled workforce program at the Department of Commerce, which, as you said, now gives the Department of Commerce authenticity, not only to lead on innovation, but to lead in the training for innovation. Business. Uh, You know, I'm very proud of the fact that with my fantastic team here at PSP, you know, we've created over my career seven companies from scratch, you know, durable businesses, and we've helped build many others. And we've created good jobs in those companies and opportunities for thousands of people. And I would say in philanthropy and civic life, I'm proud that, you know, we're, we're blessed to take, 
you know, as I said, a performance with a purpose, we take a uh, not insignificant percentage of our earnings and we're able to, we're very focused on Chicago and particularly our South and West sides. And we've invested, whether it's in, you know, Chicago Connected, which has brought broadband to 60,000 families and, and Chicago public school students, or, you know, the Chicago Prize, which is investing in, in parts of our city that haven't seen new physical investment in decades. So, you know, it's, or take the field, we did, you know, 13 turf fields all over the south and west sides of the city where there hadn't been new fields invested in in years. So it's just, you know, I'm proud to be able to support the community that I live in by trying to create jobs and trying to uh, do good things civically and philanthropically. Now, what are the Penny Pritzker principles of leadership? Well, First and foremost, and Hank, you know this, you've taught me this, team and culture are everything. You know, I have a fundamental principle, which is I want to work with people that I, you know, like, trust, and respect. And I learned a lot, you know, as I said, I sit on the board of Microsoft from Satya Nadella. He says the C in CEO stands for culture. And, you know, I think fundamentally a leader has to be the culture carrier. You know, you have to hire great people, not just people who are good at the things you're not good at, but frankly, you've got to have hire great people who are good at the things you are good at and give them room, not just to thrive, but to drive. People want to drive. And I think in doing so, you also have to embrace a growth mindset in yourself and encourage the people in your organization to keep learning, to keep growing, to keep listening. And in that respect, we have to listen more than we talk. And we have to share the stage with others and lead with empathy and integrity. You know, one of my favorite leadership principles is to trust your crazy ideas. And what I mean by that is, and I uh, I went to an incubator down in New Orleans and they had a sign, trust your crazy ideas. And I asked them, I was secretary of commerce, if I could have it. And yes, it was under the federal limit. So I, you know, could have that sign. And I hung it in my office at the department. And it's really trust your crazy ideas is creating an environment that is safe and free for everyone to be innovative and then to pursue, you know, to be bold and pursue new ideas. Obviously you have to do your homework and can't be afraid to get your hands dirty. And then finally, I would say two things. One is try to make a difference, a positive difference in the lives of others. You know, as I said earlier, I grew up with to whom much is given, much is expected. But, you know, performance with a purpose, as I have a partner who says our business, Artemis Real Estate, she says we're performance with a purpose. And I love that. And finally, finally, have fun. You know, it's you got to enjoy the journey. This not the destination. You know, Penny, I want to emphasize what you said at the beginning, because it, it, culture, if you've got the right culture which means is you've got the, the right set of values and the core principles and you've got that. And then you hire great people, you know, everything's going to take care of itself, right? Because the strategy may change, but the culture and the principles are, you're going to be your North star and you're going to have those great people. And then I want to emphasize something because having watched you and, and one of the points you made, which you do very well, because you get your hands dirty you get into all the details. You do your homework. You're 
always, always prepared. And it's, it's very few people that are great with the strategy and the vision, and then also get right down into the details so you can operate at ground level or 100,000 feet. And I think that's a, a Penny Pritzker skill set. Penny, let's conclude with career advice. You do a lot of work with young people. So what advice do you give to our younger listeners? And in particular, what advice would you give to young women who are looking to pursue careers in business or in public service? It's a really good question. You know, I think the first thing, Hank, is do what you love. And I love building businesses and I love working with teams and coaching teams. So to me, first is do what you love. Second thing, you know, I, and I used to tell the young folks at, at, uh, at commerce aim high, you know, if you're a motivated individual, you're going to get to where you think you you know, your ultimate destination is faster than you think. So aim high and choose your mentors. Well, you know, think about the people that you want to help. I mean, I have watched so many different types of leaders and there are many different types of leaders, but at the end of the day, choosing people in whose image you, you won't be them, but who you learn from. And for me, being a person of integrity is absolutely essential. And it doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. Doesn't mean we don't sometimes have misjudgments, but having high integrity, I think is essential and being curious, you know, learning is, is so important. Be open to new experiences. I mean, think about it. What if I had said no to Barack Obama? My life would be very different. What if I'd said, no, I'm not going to help you. I'm too busy. So be open to new experiences and learnings. And, you know, fundamentally at the end of the day, and you know this, you have to work your tail off. You know, you have to work hard. And, I, and then, you know, as I said, trust your crazy ideas, trust your instinct and give back. Be somebody who's not just about what you're doing for yourself, but try to give back, give back to your colleagues or help coaching or being a good friend or your community or your country. And I guess for women, it's the same advice. I would add, you know, go for it, go for it. You can balance career and family and don't let anybody tell you you can't. And then I guess I would end with something, you know, I had two people that I really, really respect. Ron Brown, who I knew up until the day he died in the plane crash, he was a former Secretary of Commerce. And he said something really important that, that resonates throughout the building at the Department of Commerce. And he was very much and very intentional about helping more women and people of color get access to opportunity. And he said, you know, leave the ladder down. And so I try to think every day about leaving the ladder down and helping other women, helping people who don't have the opportunity I do. And I'll just end with what my dear friend, the recently departed Madeline Albright said, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. And I got to tell you, she's spot on. We got to help each other. And doesn't mean we don't want to help men or, or help from men, but we got to help each other. So that's my last bit of advice for young women. You said something at the beginning, the point about choosing who you work for, you know, your work with almost as important as what you do is who you do it with. 
and having the right mentor makes all the difference. Now, Penny, thank you. This has been terrific. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground and you've given our listeners a lot to think about. So thanks a lot. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.